We're going to start, y'all, part five today. Part five. Part five? It's part five. Part four? <laughs> part four. Thank you. Part four. I'm already ready to preach next week. So part four of our series called Questions Jesus Asked. Questions Jesus Asked. Let's take a moment. Let's still our hearts. Let's prepare for the word today. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the breath in our lungs. We thank you for the opportunity to hear your word, to worship you, to pray to you, to lift our hearts and voices in praise to you. We humbly come before you and ask, Lord God, that your spirit would fill us and that your word would transform us and that we would be made into your image by the power of your spirit. We love you and praise you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. So we've been exploring these questions that Jesus asked whenever he was doing his ministry, his public ministry. He would always ask questions and evoke answers uh, from people. And so we've been exploring those questions because even though he was asking the questions to the people of his day, he is indirectly asking us these questions. And so we're, we're struggling to answer them. We're wrestling with the questions that Jesus asks of us. And today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk us through one of the most famous stories in the entire New Testament. It's a story that is in many ways more beloved than any of his miracles, any of his miraculous works, any of the extraordinary things he did. It's the story of Jesus's interaction with a woman who was caught in the act of adultery and who was brought before Jesus by people who wanted to condemn her. This is the passage in John chapter 8. It says this, Now, early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple, and all of the people came to him. And he sat down, and he taught them. So he's teaching, he's leading, he's teaching in the temple. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Now, presumably, to be caught in adultery requires more than one person, uh, but they only brought the woman before Jesus. We don't know what happened to the man. Maybe he ran. Maybe he got a pass. We don't know what happened, but they brought the woman to Jesus. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. They're saying we, we, we have no questions about her guilt. She was caught in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such a person should be stoned. But what do you say? What do you say, Jesus? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. It was a trap, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Sometimes the best response to foolishness is just to ignore it, but it's a different sermon for a different time. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go 
and sin no more. Today, I just want to explore the question that Jesus asked. The title of my sermon is, where are your accusers? Where are your accusers? Several months ago, I had the unfortunate experience of being pulled over on Forest Park Parkway for exceeding what I believe to be an excessively low speed limit. Amen, somebody? Um, no, nobody asked my opinion about it, it being a 40 uh, miles per hour speed limit on, I'm about to riff on this, aren't I? Right, on, on Forest Park Parkway. I mean, it's like a highway. Amen, somebody? <laughs> um, the, the, the police officer did not uh, agree with my assessment of of my opinion of the speed limit. So uh, when, the, when the red and blue lights flicked on behind me, he pulled me over and he gave me a ticket. Now, usually you can just, you know, uh, pay the ticket and, and not, you know, not have to mess with it any further. But for this particular ticket, I was required to go to the city of Clayton and I was actually required to appear before the judge. And what you find in a court of law is that you find two major parties. You find the accusers and then you find the accused. So in this case, the accuser was the uh, one of the city attorneys for the city of Clayton, and the accused was your pastor who was speeding down the Forest Park Parkway. The, acu- the accuser has a pile of evidence uh, ready to be presented to the court, and the accused is standing there going, what should I do in a situation like this? Now, my case was fairly easy to adjudicate. What was the speed limit? Were you exceeding it? Guilty as charged. Okay, that's exactly how that happened. Uh, and so I was required to pay a fine, and the judge said, go and sin no more. So, uh, so far, so far, so good. But the case we're looking at today had much higher stakes and much bigger issues uh, in controversy when these scribes and Pharisees brought this woman before Jesus, accusing her of, of adultery. In the case that we're looking at in the story, there are two parties. There are the accusers and there are the accused. And so let's just explore these two parties for, for just a moment. What's interesting in this story is that the accusers come ready to accuse this woman of committing adultery, but we learn from the story that she wasn't actually the target of their accusation. She was the prop for their accusation because they actually came to find a means by which they could accuse Jesus of committing a sin or of committing a violation. The scripture says that they were testing him when they came to this question. Here's how they were testing him. They said, the law of Moses teaches us that when a woman or a person is caught in adultery, they are to be stoned. But what do you say? Here's what they're pointing out. The law of Moses indeed does say and did say that a person would be stoned for committing adultery. Now, there were all kinds of safeguards uh, in the Talmud among the Sanhedrin to avoid excessive punishments. And uh, most, most rabbis and scholars would say, The idea of capital punishment was extremely rare, and yet, nevertheless, that's what the law of Moses said. It said a person should be stoned if they've committed adultery. However, there was another law governing the first century Jewish community, and that's the law of Rome. And the law of Rome said, we hold the exclusive jurisdiction over the death penalty. Nobody is allowed to kill anybody except we, except the Romans. So what they were doing is putting Jesus in an impossible situation. If Jesus said go ahead and kill her, then what they could do is take him and put him before the Roman government and say, this man is trying to start a sedition and an insurrection and he should be killed. 
But if he said, no, 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 don't kill her, then they would undermine him as a prophet and a teacher and say, oh, you don't even adhere to the law of Moses. And they would put, uh, put, put him on blast in front of everybody uh, it, that he was trying to teach. So any way he answered this question, he could not answer it correctly because it was a setup. It was a trap. This is what accusers do. Accusers who are in the vein of the people who showed up on this particular day. They're not interested in justice. They're not interested in truth. They're not interested in righteousness. They're not interested in the spiritual, moral, or emotional health of the woman who was brought before him. They're only interested in crushing the opposition. They were accusers. Accusers act out of a false sense of moral superiority. And here's how we know when we're accusers, or here's how we recognize when someone else is an accuser, because the mark of an accuser is a stone. The mark of an accuser is, is a stone. A person who wants to make accusations and accuse others is a person who is just waiting to crush the opposition. Now, I will just say this, even though One Family Church is the most amazing group of people on the planet, all of us have been tempted at some point, to pick up a stone. Not an actual stone, probably, but a stone of animosity, a stone of bitterness, a stone of judgment, a stone of vengeance, a a stone of malice. There have been times in my life, some relatively recently, where someone will say something that I find to be uh, hurtful towards people I love. And my reaction is to want to pick up a stone. It's interesting when somebody is throwing a stone at you that your first response or your first initial reaction might be, I want to throw a stone back at them. But Jesus teaches us the futility of picking up stones. In fact, uh, a a few weeks ago when I when I felt the desire to pick up a stone because someone had said things about uh, our church that just wasn't fair, I wanted to pick up a stone. And then the Lord reminded me two things. One, he reminded me, hey, you've got to preach this sermon in two weeks. So so be careful what kind of stones you throw. But what he really spoke to me is he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. If you've never committed a a sin, then you have the right to judge. But, But picking up stones is problematic for a number of reasons. One is he teaches us that when we are accusers, we are in the most spiritually dangerous position because it is so difficult to see our own sin when we are focused on the sin of somebody else. The problem with accusers is they don't realize that they are worthy of accusation themselves. They're too busy judging somebody else to recognize that they are worthy of judgment as well. Jesus said, whatever measure you use to judge somebody else, that's the measure of judgment that will be used against you. His, his brother James said, judgment without mercy will be met with judgment without mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus says, if you, if you, if you cannot see the speck in your brother's eye because of the beam in your own eye, you might want to work on the beam in your own eye before you go after the speck in your, in your brother's eye. In other words, what he's saying today, church, is we got to put down our stones. We don't ever want to be in the position of an accuser. We don't ever want to be in the position of somebody casting stones at another person because when we do that, 
we, we will falter under the weight of the stones. It's interesting when somebody becomes an accuser, it's hard to stop being an accuser. It sort of creates a, a cycle of accusation. Do you know, at the end of this story that we're reading today, and I, w- I won't have time to, to go through it, but at the end of this story, at the end of John chapter 8, the Pharisees came back, and the Scripture says that they picked up stones to stone Jesus. They started with stones to stone the woman. They ended up with stones to stone Jesus. And then John chapter 10, they picked up stones again to stone Jesus. Why? Because they had become accusers, and accusers are always marked by a stone. If you're carrying the, the stone of unforgiveness in your heart today, or a lack of mercy, or any kind of bitterness, or any kind of anger at someone else, or any unresolved issue that you have with somebody else, can I just encourage you today, put down that stone. Be free. Put down that stone. I've had to get on my knees and say, God, I, I release the stones that I've been carrying in my heart. I release the stones that I've been carrying towards others who, uh, who, who may have unjustly said things about uh, one family church, and I need to put down those stones and say, God, I, I'm praying for them. I love them. I want you to, to extend your mercy and grace to anybody who is in opposition to, to one family church or to the church of Jesus. We say, man, God, we bring them before you. We ask, Lord God, that you would bring them into your grace and into your love. We've got to put down our stones. That's the accuser. That's one party. What about the accused? The mark of the accused is not a stone. The mark of the accused is a stain. The mark of the accused is a stain. When I was uh, uh, in college, I worked at a restaurant. I waited tables. And one, one night I was carrying a tray of wine to a table, red wine, and somebody stood up at the table while I was delivering the, the wine, bumped my arm, and this tray of red wine spilled all over the table. It was a white tablecloth. It was a nice restaurant. All over the clothes of the guests, all over my clothes, all over the white apron, all over, all over everything. The reason that all of these items were stained is that they came in contact with, with uh, a substance that causes a stain. The philosopher and theologian Thomas Aquinas, who was a Dominican friar and priest, said this. This is a fascinating statement that he made in, uh, in his book, Summa Theologica. Here's what he says. Now, when the soul cleaves to things by love, there is a kind of contact in the soul. And when man sins, he cleaves to certain things against the light of reason and against the divine law, Wherefore, the loss of beauty occasioned by this contact is metaphorically called a stain on the soul. What's he saying? He's saying when we sin, we, when our souls come into contact with sin, we are, we are stained by that sin. Our soul is stained by that sin. When we, when we do things that don't align with the teachings of Christ, our soul is stained by the contact. And it doesn't matter what the kind of, what the sin might be. It could be a sin of, of greed or, 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 or envy or, or lust or deceit. But we are stained by the sins that we commit. The woman in this moment that we meet was stained. She was stained in her own soul by the sin that she had committed. She was stained in the eyes of the community. She was stained in the eyes of her friends and of her family. And she brought the stain upon herself by actually committing an act that was not permissible. 
And, and so she's now under the accusations of others. She's walking as an accused person bearing the stain of her sin. The question is, how long do you have to walk around with that stain? How long do you have to walk around under the stain of sin? Some, some of you today are still walking around with the stains of sins from your, from your past. We can't see them because they're stains on your soul. But you see them. Every morning when you wake up, you, you, you think about the, the things that you did that you regret. The things that you wish you had not done. The decisions that you made. The words that you said. The thoughts that you thought. The actions that you took. And you carry around the stain on the soul. But can I tell you today, Jesus came to take away the stain. Jesus said, I want you not only to put down your stone, I want you to put down your stain. In fact, the scripture says this about Jesus' mission. Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain, without wrinkle, without any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Did you know that the stain of sin is not permanent? The stain of sin does not have to stay on your clothes. Here's how it's stated in 1 John. It says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's somebody who's walking around with stains on their soul and says, I don't have any stains. These aren't stains. This is just my shirt. It's, this is my decoration. Right? I don't have any I don't have any sins. He said we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Can I just say to somebody today, it is not hard to take off the stains. It is not hard to come before Jesus and say, I, I'm gonna lay the stains at your feet. If you're a person who is tempted to be an accuser, lay down your stone. If you're a person who is uh, tempted to stay stained by sin, put down your stain. Now, at the beginning of the sermon, I said there were two main characters, the accused and the accuser. But I held off a little bit. I held back a little bit. Because there's actually one more character. In fact, the most important character in the story. In fact, the most important character in the entire Bible. And he's the one that points us to the futility of walking around with stones and walking around with stains. Now, there's a line at the end of the story that we almost never hear. In fact, I, I didn't put it in the top of my sermon. I didn't read it when I read the passage today. And most people don't read the last line of the story when they read the story about the woman caught in adultery. They don't read the last verse of the story. What happened in this moment is Jesus, remember, was teaching in the temple. He was teaching the people. The scribes and Pharisees brought the woman, and then he said, who was without sin, cast the first stone, and then the Pharisees left, and then he turned to the woman and said, uh, go your way and sin no more, neither do I condemn you, right? But then the people who had gathered around were still there. And so Jesus turns back to them and teaches him what he was planning to teach before he was interrupted by the scribes and Pharisees. And here's what he says in verse 12 of John 8. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, 
but have the light of life. Here's what he's demonstrating to us today. He's saying an accuser is known by their stone. The mark of an accused is their stain. But the mark of a Christian is their light. He said, if you will follow me, you will not walk in darkness. Some of you may know the old Aretha Franklin song. Walk in the light, the beautiful light. Anybody? Just me. Come where the dewdrops of mercy shine bright. Shine all around us by day and by night. Jesus, the light of the world. I'm going to teach you all that song because we need to be singing that song. Dim the lights just a minute. If you can, they're in the back. Just dim the lights a minute. I just want to show what it looks like, what it looks like to be a Christian. If you can just bring the fader down on those lights and just slide that fader on down. There it is. The mark of a Christian is the light. This is what it is to look like for those of us who are followers of Jesus. We are not to be known by our stones. We are not to be known by our stains. We are to be known by our light. The mark of a Christian, a true Christian, is the light. The light shines light in the darkness. The Christian brings justice where there is injustice. The Christian brings clarity where there is confusion, brings hope where there is despair, brings healing where there is suffering, and brings sight where there is blindness. That is who we are. That is what we're called to do. That is what we are called to be. We are called to be the light. If you want to know what a Christian is supposed to look like, there's supposed to be a light in the darkness. There's supposed to be a light that guides, a light that leads, a light that comforts, a light that protects. We are called by Jesus to be the light. You can bring up the lights now. We're called to be the light by Jesus rather than to be the accuser, rather than to be the accused. And then the question for us has to be, how do we shine that light. If we're going to be the light, what do we do to actually shine that light? What does it look like to shine the light? In a moment like the one we find Jesus in, where around us we are either with the accusers or with the accused. What does it mean to shine the light? Jesus answers that question in perhaps the most famous line in the whole scripture. It's verse 11 where he says to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I want you to get the full impact of that sentence. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Church, I want you to memorize this line. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. What does that mean? This is what it means to be the light. It means that Jesus neither condemns nor condones. He corrects with compassion. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Jesus tells the accuser, put down your stone. He tells the accused, put down your stain. And he tells all of us, follow me. I'm the light of the world. When Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, what he's saying is, I embrace you. I love you. I affirm you as a child of God. You are made in the image of God. You were bought with a price. You are a priceless masterpiece of the master creator. That's who you are. Neither do I condemn you. You are God's child. You don't have to walk around with stains anymore. Where are your 
accusers. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I embrace you and affirm you as, as a child of the living God. When he says, go and sin no more, he's saying, I love you enough to lead you towards the path of righteousness. I love you enough to point you in a better direction. Every single one of us, when we walk into the presence of Jesus, what he's saying to you and me is, I love you, and I'm going to lead you. I love you where you are, and I'm going to lead you to where I am. I love you in your darkness, and I'm going to lead you to the light. I do not condemn. I do not condone. I'm going to lead you into the light. If we're going to be a light in the darkness, church, we've got to follow the path of Jesus. We've got to be a church that neither condemns nor condones, but shines the light of Jesus wherever we go. Now, we don't really know what happened to the accusers in this story. We don't, we don't know what happened to all of them. We know that some of them came back to stone Jesus, but we know that some of them actually turned to Jesus. In fact, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in the dark and said, hey, we, we know you're, you're speaking the truth. We know you're a man of God. We know you're a prophet. And he, and, he, and he started asking Jesus about how he could follow him. We don't really know what happened to the accused. We don't ever find out in the story, did she repent and become a follower of Jesus or did she go back to the relationship that she was in? We have no idea what happened to the accusers or what happened to the accused, but we do know what happened to Jesus. What happened to Jesus is he continued to speak the truth in love. He continued to shine the light of hope. He continued to proclaim the gospel of peace. And for that, he suffered. He was tortured, mocked, and spit upon. Ultimately, he was hung on a tree and pierced with a sword. He was driven to the point of such agonizing misery that he asked his father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And then he breathed his last, and his body went limp. He was taken down from the cross and buried in a tomb. Now, if the story ended there, we would say, perhaps I don't want to walk in the light. Perhaps I'd like to stay in the darkness and keep my head down. Perhaps I don't want to to, to follow this Jesus because it ends badly for him. But if you've been around the church for even a minute, you know that that's not how the story ends. As the old song says, there ain't no grave that could hold his body down. Because light always drives out darkness. Love always drives out fear. Truth always prevails over deceit. And eternal life always triumphs over death. So we don't know what the accusers did. And we don't know what the accused did. But I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay down my stones. I'm going to lay down my stains. I'm neither going to condemn nor condone. I'm going to shine the truth of Jesus wherever I go because that's the mark of a Christian. That is what we do. That is what we are called to be. We're going to keep feeding the poor, keep clothing the naked, keep preaching the gospel, keep bringing peace, hope, justice, and righteousness to a world in need. We're going to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're going to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and body And we are going to walk in the light, the beautiful light. We're going to come where the dew drops of mercy shine bright. They're going to shine all around us by day and by night because Jesus is the light of the world. Let's bow our heads. Father, your word is rich and true. And we come before you today asking, Lord, that your word would pierce through our soul and bring the light of hope, the light of truth, the light of justice, and the light of peace into our minds and into our hearts. 
Today we come before you, Lord, asking that you would guide us and lead us. Asking, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and strength. That you would give us peace and hope. That you would allow us to be the light that you've called us to be. That we would shine light in the darkness. That we would bring healing, hope, peace, and justice into a world that needs you. I pray, Lord God, that you would supernaturally fill our hearts and minds with your strength and with your wisdom, with the clarity of your word. Let us overflow with your love. We honor you. We praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen.